So uh, we are continuing our series, you see, Big Questions, Biblical Answers, taking questions that y'all had and answering those and looking at them through the lens of Scripture, questions about culture or things that we see around us or questions maybe we have seen online. Um, and so we just want to take those. And so tonight's question is what happens to babies, infants, young children that die, let's say, inside or outside the womb? And so this is a follow-up for those here that last week, Pastor Scott Horde was here talking about his ministry in saving babies uh, from abortion mills and just uh, protecting life. And so tonight, this is kind of a follow-up of that of, okay, what happens to those babies that get aborted? Or what happens to children that unfortunately are just are miscarried during the pregnancy? Or what happens to just children that unfortunately die? And so we want to look at that through the lens of Scripture and what this has to say. Because there's a few different truths we can pull out of Scripture to get from this. But to kind of frame this even more is, I was just kind of looking up, uh, what are some of the rates that, that, that children are dying. And so if you look even on your notes, it says, according to CDC, there are 3,400 sudden unexpected infant deaths each year in the United States. And that's about just nine babies a day, which is heartbreaking to see. Um, or even just last year alone in the year 2020, worldwide, there were 42.6 million abortions, which is more deaths caused by AIDS, cancer, malaria, and others combined. That's about 117,000 babies a day. And so this, of course, as Christians, should grieve our hearts. The fact that, you know, children are either being aborted or we're losing a precious life that God cares about so dearly. But it also has us raise a bunch of questions like, okay, then what happens to these babies? They'd either unexpectedly pass away or someone willfully takes them away from the world. Where do they go? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? And so that's what we're going to address tonight. As we go through this scripture, I want us to find comfort, maybe for parents or friends or families that have lost loved ones, um, that have lost a child in this way, and that I want it to be something where we can say with confidence that they do go to heaven, but not a, it's not for a sentimental reasoning, but it's scripturally a reason. So let's pray, and then I want us to just dive into this question together. So let's pray first. Dear Lord, we just come before you as fallen, sinful human beings in desperate need of your grace to understand anything from Scripture, to be able to grasp it, to live it out. And so, God, I just, I humbly confess before you, I am totally unable and incapable of being able to properly um, talk about these truths, exposit these truths, preach about these truths without the power and presence of your Holy Spirit guiding every word and every action, every step. So Holy Spirit, would you just purify every single person, including myself in this room, of any sort of pride that we might have. So you will humble us and see even more of our need for you, Jesus. That you will open up our minds to grasp these truths from your word. That you'll open up our ears to be able to hear these truths. Open up our eyes to see more of our need for Christ. And would you open up our hearts and just lay them bare to, to confess sins that we need to repent of, to encourage us with truths from your word. And that all of this would just uh, bear fruit in our lives as only you can. That would help us become even more of the followers of Christ you've called each and every one of us to be. And that will help us become even more of the family of God you've called all of us here to be. And ultimately through this, we can take these out into our community and continue to make Christ's name known. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy, powerful, precious name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so there are several different truths we're going to be looking at tonight as we work through this of answering the question, what happens to babies that die inside or outside the womb? And the first truth I want to see is this, is that life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. And so you see several of those verses, several of those passages, but the one I want to look at specifically is Psalm 139, the same one that Pastor Scott used last week in this regard. Because I think it captures all of this so well in understanding this truth. This is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, where it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when yet, yet as yet, there was none of them. So basically saying, before we even took our first breath, before we were even conceived, God knew about us. Every single child that would ever be born. And so what we see is from the moment we see of conception, so basically as soon as sperm and egg come together, life immediately starts there. Life starts at conception. A life is created that's created by God, that's loved by God, and has a purpose from God, that they have a soul. It's a beautiful creation of God. So we see that life begins at conception. That is important where we start there. Then the second truth we see is that God is sovereign over all of life. God is sovereign over all of life. We see that in the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. That when nothing was around, God was still there. God orchestrated everything. God created everything. We even see this in several different passages, several different scriptures you see on there. And so we just want to look at a couple of them. The first one being John 1, 3. We're in John. It says this. Where it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or it says Colossians 1, 16, that he is preeminent in everything. That everything is held by him and everything is for him. So we see that God is the one who gives and takes away life. That nothing happens outside of the sovereign knowledge and hand of God. So no birth or death happens outside of his sovereignty or control. That he is sovereign over life and death and salvation, everything. And we'll see this throughout the rest of these truths. God is actively involved in every feature of every life, including whether a child is born or dies in the womb. So we see that life begins at conception, that God knows about all those children, that God is sovereign over all of that. So the next thing I want to see, it might sound like an odd turn that we're going, but the third truth I want to see is this, is that everyone is born in sin. So every life conceived, yes, it is a beautiful creation of time, but at the same time, it is also born in sin. That it is born in sin. So here's just one of those. In Psalm 55, or 51, verse 5, we see this truth. Where it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, or in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
And the reason, because as we see in all these other truths, in Romans 5, 12, it talks about how Adam, the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall of man, as we see in Genesis 3, that from Adam's sin, sin infected and impacted everything in all of creation, including us as human beings. So everyone born after that, they are born with this sinful nature. And so we see in Romans 3.10 that, that no one is righteous, no, not one. Or Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it talks about how we were born dead in our sins, that we are children of wrath, that we want nothing to do with God. Now, of course, we've discussed this throughout different aspects of truth that we've seen and questions that we've answered. And so life, again, begins at conception when elements are first brought together. And it's in that moment that, yes, it has a soul, but it's also born with a sin nature. And as we've seen before in, in Scripture, is that because of sin, sin separates us from God, that the wages of sin is death. So someone might hear that, they might look at these truths and see these things and just automatically assume, okay, well, that means if we're all born with sin, and we are separated from God from sin, and the wages of sin is death, then that must mean every time a child dies or passes away, whatever the case is, that means they must be separated from God and go to hell. And I would say no. In fact, that is not what Scripture says. And the reason why I want to mention this, the reason why I mention this part before we get into everything else is because what I want us to understand from Scripture is that babies go to heaven not because they are sinless, but because of the grace of God. Okay? So it's not because that they are sinless, but it's because of the grace of God that He bestows upon all of us. So here's what we're going to look at next. We're going to look at several different truths of why, as we see from Scripture, babies, what we would say as Christians, here would be our answer. If someone asks us, okay, what happens to this child that is miscarried or is aborted or passes away? Where do they go? And we would say immediately to heaven. Immediately to heaven. Here's the several truths we're going to look at of why we explain that. So the first one is this. Babies have no willful rebellion or unbelief. So babies have no willful rebellion or unbelief. So you see in your notes that, that every time we see people that, that are separated from God or that the people that inhabit hell, it's people that are actively doing these sins, that they willfully commit these sins. So just a few of them, let's say we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, we see this one. Again, these are people that are willfully doing this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And those other ones that you see, that it just kind of talks about the same different things, that nor will this person or this person or this person. It's people that are actively, willfully sinning against God. Well, babies are incapable of being able to willfully rebel against God or commit the greatest sin, which is of unbelief. Babies cannot discern right from wrong or sin from righteousness. And that is because of anybody ever heard the phrase, the age of accountability? Is there anybody that's not heard what the age of accountability is? That they've never heard that, and that's okay. So what people consider the age of accountability is they consider it, okay, when let's say a child reaches a certain age that they're able to understand all of this. They're able to understand right from wrong, sin from righteousness. They're able to understand salvation. They're able to understand the gospel, which means once they're able to understand those, then that means they are then responsible to respond to the gospel. They're responsible for responding to this knowledge that they now have. 
I wouldn't necessarily say the age of accountability. I think a better wording we can say is the condition of accountability. The condition of accountability. The reason I say that is because when we say age of accountability, it sounds like, okay, once they reach this specific age, then, ever, then you're immediately, like, you immediately have to recognize this. You immediately are in these things and have to recognize and repent and believe. They kind of treat it as like, okay, once you turn 18, you automatically become an adult. I think we treat it as, okay, once they reach this certain age, you automatically are aware of all these things. And the thing is, all of us are different when we come to that condition. All of us are, are different when we come to that mental capability of being able to understand things. We can say this for people that, let's say, are mentally handicapped, that they might be a lot farther along with the process of trying to grasp these things than, let's say, we are. Or some of us might come to this knowledge a lot later or earlier in life. So it's not necessarily an age of accountability, it's a condition of accountability. And so people develop at different rates. And so here's just a couple of verses we're going to look at. is John 3, 36, where it says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so we see it's whoever believes in them. But if the baby is never able to come to a knowledge of what does it mean to believe? Why do I need to believe? What is the purpose of believing? Then they're not able to willfully take this and rebel against God or receive it from God. So here's a story that we can take, two stories we can take from Scripture to kind of explain this a little better, okay? So the first one comes from Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And so this is where uh, the Israelites are roaming around just in the wilderness, waiting to go to the promised land, and a lot of the older Israelites rebel against God. They actively, willfully rebel against God. God notices this, and he's going to keep them out of the promised land, except for the little ones. So here's what he says. So in Deuteronomy 1, verse 35, it says this, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your fathers. And then just a few verses down, in verse 39, it says this, and as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Why? Why did he give this to them? Because they didn't know about right or wrong. It was the parents that are committing these acts. It wasn't the children. They were, they were innocent in this because they didn't know these things and were able to act on this. While the parents, the older people, knew this, they understood this, and they willfully acted against it. They willfully rebelled against God. Or another one is in the book of Jonah. So Jonah's trying to, we know Jonah, where he didn't want to go to Nineveh, so he ran the other direction, gets eaten by a big fish. And then he still did not want the people of Nineveh to be saved. And Paul, God's talking to me and says, look, there is 120,000 little children in there that don't know their left hand from their right hand who still need to be saved. So saying there's 120,000 babies, young children, things that in there that are still needing to be saved and that the Lord graciously spared them because they didn't know good from evil. Just like the Israelite babies, they didn't know good from evil. So God has great compassion and grace on little children and babies because they have no willful rebellion against God. They have no deeds of unbelief. And that's because they couldn't believe. They're, they're unable to make that willful connection and choice to believe. So the first one we see is this, the babies have no willful rebellion or unbelief. The next truth we see is this, babies are incapable of suppressing the truth. So babies are incapable of suppressing the truth. So for those of you that were here, 
uh, for when we answered the question of what happens to the people who have never heard the gospel, you'll recognize this passage is in Romans chapter 1. It's talking about how God has revealed himself to the world through general revelation. If you remember, general revelation is what God has revealed through all people at all times and all places, mainly his creation around us. But it doesn't talk about salvation or anything else, but it at least reveals God around us so we can have a knowledge of God and we can either respond to that or reject it. And so in Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we see, okay, these people, they knew God. They see the world around them. They say, okay, there must be a higher power here. There must be something going on. But instead, I'm going to reject this creator and worship creation itself or worship myself in this case. That they suppress the truth. That they at least see the truth around them that they're able to gain and they suppress that truth. They're saying, I don't want to believe in this. And it continues further in the second half of verse uh, or chapter 1. We see this in verses 28 through 32 where it says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteous, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So again, they gain this knowledge, and instead of acknowledging God, they're saying, nope, we're going to suppress this truth, we're going to live for ourselves, and then we see the evil that comes about of that. And so what we see from this is that babies are unable to be able to suppress the truth around them. So a young child has no ability to perceive what has been revealed or made manifest around them and then reject it. They have no awareness of, of the things of God that has revealed, and therefore they can either cry out to God for help or reject God. And so because that babies are un, uh, and incapable of being able to suppress the truth around them, unlike we see from people that are mentally able to grasp all these things and suppress the truth and instead we see the result of when they suppress the truth and live for themselves then they willfully rebel against god they willfully unbelieve in god and so we see babies are incapable of being able to suppress the truth so here's the next thing we see the next truth we see is babies are unable to account for their sins babies are unable to account for their sins and so you see in Deuteronomy 1, 35 and 39 that they were unable to account for their sins because they didn't commit the sins. It was their parents that committed the sin. Or in Jonah 4, 11, it wasn't the babies that committed the sin. It was, it was the people in, in the city around them that was committing this sin. And so one we would look at is 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to kind of help explain this a little more. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 
It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So again, I know we talked about earlier how everyone is born in sin, that because of the sin of Adam, we're born in sin, but that, that does not mean that we are responsible for Adam's sin. Okay, is everyone tracking with me on that? We're not responsible for Adam's sin, but because of Adam's sin, we are born with a sinful nature. And it's us acting on our sinful nature, and it's those things, whether it be good or evil, that we will have to give an account for. So not what Adam did, but what we have done in our life, in our own bodies, we will have to give an account for that. And so this is what it says. The Bible says that everyone is accountable for what they've done, but a baby or young child is incapable of being able to commit sinful deeds that would either stain their soul and that would cause them to be subject to God's punishment. And so these, these babies are unable to account for their sins, which means that babies are not, let's say, an extension of a parent. So if a parent is sinful, it's not saying, oh, the child was an extension of that. No, the child was responsible for their own choices, just like the parent is responsible for their own choices, which means regardless of the baby is born to a Christian family or a non-Christian family in the United States or a different country, it, it doesn't matter. They're not responsible for their parents. They're responsible for their own. We see the babies are unable to account for their own sins. The next truth we see is this, the babies are unable to choose salvation. Babies are unable to choose salvation. So you see in some of these, you see, let's say in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever, what? Believes, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts shall be saved. Again, so what we've seen earlier is that babies have not reached that point of being able to grasp like all that's going on around them. They're not able to understand the law and grace. They're not able to understand sin and righteousness. They're not able to understand heaven and hell. They're not able to understand the gospel and their need to believe in the gospel. They're unable to perceive all of these things that God has revealed. So they're unable again to cry out for God for salvation or reject him. They're unable to suppress the truth because they, they they're not able to grasp the truth yet. So if they're unable to know these things and they're unable to know their need for a savior, therefore they're being unable to repent and believe in him. So baby or young child is unable to process all this, which means they're unable to make a willful choice to believe in Christ. And so with Jesus, when we look at your, um, if you look at your notes in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, it's Jesus talking about the narrow path about the narrow path and the wide path, and it's, it's hard to find the narrow path. And what he's talking about, what that means is those that are intellectually able to seek out that narrow path. So it's talking about those that are intellectually able to seek that out, willfully going after it and finding it. And so, of course, babies, young children, infants, they're unable to do that, which means they're unable to choose salvation. So here are several different truths that we've seen that we can say from Scripture would say that babies, infants, those children would immediately go to heaven. And there's, there's at least one more that I want us to see, one more truth that will kind of bring all this together, and that is this, is that God cherishes children. God cherishes children. And what I mean by that is I just want to look at uh, just several different verses all through the book of Matthew in chapters 18 and chapters 19 that would point to this, of how God cherishes children above everything else. 
So this is what it says first in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. Um, the disciples are coming to Jesus saying, Hey, Jesus, who is the greatest disciple among us? And Jesus answered them with this. And they said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Talk about taking this seriously. Is that Jesus cared about little children. Or just a few verses later in chapter 18 of Matthew in verse 10, Jesus says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Or in verse 14 of that same chapter where it says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's not the heart of God that one of these little ones should perish because God cherishes children. Now I want to see this last one in Matthew uh, 19. Verses 13 through 15, this is Jesus saying, hey, let the little children come to me. So it says, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Jesus said, if we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we're to become like little children. He even rebuked his own disciples that try to keep the little children away. That's because God does not desire for any young child, young child to die. But also God cherishes children because Jesus saw a child as the model of dependency and trust. That the mind of innocence and humility, eager to please and give thanks, quick to express love, quick to receive and obey what was commanded. A child is the best illustration of the redeemed believer who theirs is the salvation, who theirs are able to inherit the kingdom. That, that is what it's all about, that God cherishes children. And that's what we see in this. So here's what I want to do. I want to end it. I want to end this on kind of two different tales that are going to have two different endings, all revolving around King David. Okay? So these are going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. And it's about two different children that King David lost. And he has two different reactions to these. So the first one is in 2 Samuel chapter 18. And so to give a little backstory about kind of what's going on before I read these verses, is that Absalom is the name of one of David's children. He is trying to, he's trying to lead a rebellion. He's trying to take over the throne. He's trying to kill David, take all these things. Well, in the process of doing this, Absalom is actually riding on his mule and he's trying to go underneath uh, this heavy branch. What happens is his head ends up getting stuck in this heavy branch and he's just hanging. So the mule goes out, mule goes flying off from underneath him and he's just dangling from this log. And then come to find out that, that one of the people that saw Absalom hanging from that and they're like, okay, we need to kill this guy because he's been trying to kill King David. And so they take three javelins and they stab him through the heart to kill him. And they're going to tell King David, hey, we, we've eliminated this guy that has been trying to get you for so long. And then here's what it says. Okay, in 2 Samuel 18, verses 31 through 33, this is what it says. And behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the King, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The King said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. 
And the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The king David is grieving the loss of his son. He's grieving loss of his son. Why? Because he knew that Absalom had a moral capacity to understand right and wrong, to understand sin and righteousness, and he chose to willfully act and rebel against God and rebel against King David himself. And now that he's been killed, he knows that he is not going to be able to have a second chance. He's going to have to stand before God and before judgment to account for his sins, knowing that he, wasn't, he didn't make that willful choice to choose salvation. So David is grieving the loss of his son Absalom. So this is one tale of one son. But let's look at the second one. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is verses 15 through 23. So this is uh, the child that, that uh, David and Bathsheba conceived when David committed adultery against um, Uriah. And so because this, Nathan the prophet is told, told David, you're going you're gonna to face judgment for this. And so here's what we read in chapter 12, verses 15 uh, through 23. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him. And he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. And here's in verse 23, so listen closely to this. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, and he will not return to me. So two different reactions. We see Absalom, he is grieving over the loss of Absalom. We see with this child, this baby, that he is fasting, he is, he is not having any food, he is pleading before God, and ultimately God takes the child away. But yet David does not mourn, he does not grieve or weep like he did Absalom. But we see instead, he says, I shall go to him, and he shall not return to me. So ultimately, this is showing that, that, again, we know by David, he is a man after God's own heart. That yes, David sinned. He had mighty sins, but ultimately he was a believer. And so I don't think he was saying this to be like, well, I'm going to go see him down in hell. He's saying, no, I'm going to see him in heaven. And then I'm going to be with my child, that I'll be able to go hold him again. I'll be able to see him again in heaven, that I shall go to him. And so it's two totally different stories with two totally different outcomes. That David had this confidence that he was going to heaven. 
and that his child was already there and he was going to be able to see him again. So how does the gospel respond to this question? How does ultimately the gospel respond to this question? As we've seen, everyone is born with a sinful nature. Everyone is born into sin. But God is gracious to babies and young children because they're innocent and brings them to heaven when they die. Not because they're sinless. Not because they're sinless, but because God is gracious. And that God cherishes every child and is with them every step, knows every little detail about them, and has a purpose for all of these different things. Even if they would only take a few steps on earth or no steps on earth. But also, here's another beautiful thing we need to think about is that parents that that grieve and friends that grieve this is that parents and friends can go see that child again if they will repent and believe in the gospel. That they'll be able to spend an eternity with that child worshiping the same God. No more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more worries about that. That we can experience that if we will repent and believe in Christ they'll be reunited with their child again and hold them again. And ultimately because of this, we worship a gracious, loving God. So whenever we face this question of people with a loss and we say, where where has my child gone? We can say with confidence through Scripture, they've immediately gone to heaven. And if we have repented and believed in Christ too, we'll be able to see them again, hold them again, and worship alongside them, worshiping Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are just so thankful for the truths of your word. We're so thankful how you just care just about every single person, every single detail, every single life, that you knew about all of our days before we even took the first one, that before we were even conceived in our mother's womb, you knew every little detail about us that you're able to save from the very youngest and tiniest among us to the very oldest among us and everyone in between. We thank you for the truths of your word that can comfort others, that can comfort us in our time of need. Lord, would you help us be gracious and loving as we live this out? Would you help us whenever we encounter these people that we will just be a light pointing them to Christ? that we would grieve with them, that be able to to hold them and be able to encourage them, saying, you'll be able to hold your child again because of the awesome, amazing grace of God. May we cling to this grace every single day so we continue to live for you. We continue to become more of those followers you've called us to be, more of this family that you've called us to be, and ultimately to make Christ's name known. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name precious, gracious, powerful name we pray. Amen.